Father in heaven, it really has been a great week in worshiping you. All these different opportunities that have been put before us, we have appreciated them and loved them and loved you because you have met us each time. We're asking that you do that again, that you meet us here this morning. Father, as you do, we're going to look at some difficult things in the Bible. They are, for many of us, hard to believe, but they are truth. So would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you make all of us listeners? It would be easy for me to get in the way of this message. So I'm asking that you remove me from it and just allow your spirit to speak. Father, help us all grab hold of what we need to as we look at this in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I say that we're going to look at Scripture, I'm not kidding. We're going to look at a whole bunch of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to find one in the chair racks in front of you or behind you so that you can follow along. This stuff is it is deep teaching of the Bible. It is truth. It is hard to believe for a number of people, but it's important for all of us to take a look at. Before we get into that, though, I want you all to just journey back with me a few years to when you were just a little child, just a little kid. And you found yourself thinking about what you wanted to be when you grow up. For most people, that's what we do. When we're little kids, adults come to us and they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Few people might answer it this way. I want to be a professional baseball player. Somebody else might say, I want to play football for the pros. Other people might say, if they have certain gifts, I want to be a professional singer or I want to be a dancer. Other people that will say, I want to be a fireman or a policeman or an astronaut. What do you want to be? I want everybody to think about that. See if you can grab hold of that right now. What do you want to be when you were growing up? Now, be honest with the people next to you. So here's what I want you to do. Just turn to the people sitting next to you. Tell them what you wanted to be when you grow up so that you can be held accountable for this. Jim Wiggert's not doing this. Now, that could be because it was so long ago he can't remember. I don't know. Go ahead and just share that with people sitting next to you. All right, there we go. That's as far as you have to go. My oldest son was sitting up here by his mother in first service, and he was using his fingers. I want to be this and this. and That's pretty cool. A lot of us do have lists like that. I want to try all kinds of different things. For me, though, I was laser-focused. This is what I wanted to be. Watch this clip. Look at that! Well, boss, you can't cowboy, can he? Yeah, broke the mold after him. It was pretty simple for me. I didn't have to think about it very long. I wanted to be a cowboy. My parents named me Philip. It means lover of horses. I wanted to be a cowboy. I still do. I can remember going to bed at night with dreams of bringing in the herd. Wanted to be a cowboy. I had a problem though. I didn't have a horse. It was tough. Very difficult for me. As I got older, still wanted to be a cowboy, my wife started buying for me pieces of tack a number of years ago, and they would hang in our house in different places, and I would look at them. I remember when she bought me my first halter and lead rope. It was about six years before I got a horse. I, I put it on the dog. I put it on the kids. I led everybody around. I had a halter and a lead rope. I wanted to be a cowboy so bad. Then she started buying me other pieces of tack. Birthdays would roll around. Christmas would roll around, and she would buy me this tack, but I still didn't have a horse. When I turned 40, she bought me a horse or got me a horse. And that was pretty exciting. And now all of a sudden I thought I'm going to be a cowboy. I went out and I bought the perfect saddle. And 
I have a head stall now made by Brett Bronson. I have all this beautiful tack. You can come to my house, sit downstairs with me in my tack room. I have two chairs that are pointed towards my saddle. You can sit down with me and we can just look at my wall of tack. It's cool. You'll feel like a cowboy when you're there too. And, and then maybe we'll, we'll turn around and watch a western. Be great stuff. So now I, I get to go ride my horse. I put my perfect saddle on my horse. I put my handmade custom headstall on my horse. And I grab hold of these reins that I love. And I love my horse. And it, it's just fantastic. I was riding a week ago. Loved it. But here's what I know. No matter how hard I try, no matter what I own, no matter how far I ride, I am nothing but a fake. A complete and total imposter. If you put me in a room of real honest-to-goodness cowboys, it will take you about three minutes to figure that out. I am just a big fake. Some of you are too. You decided a long time ago you wanted to be a professional baseball player and you watched the World Series last week and thought, I don't even come close. There's no way I could even get near those guys. Put me in a room with them for three minutes and you'll find out that I'm just a big fake. Isn't that right, Brian Stewart? Okay. <laughs> Wow, that was a lot more sympathy for him than I expected. That was something. Some of you wanted to be football players and you find out that there's no hope of that. Others of you that wanted to be professional singers, you found out you can't sing. Some of you thought, I'm going to be a dancer and you have no rhythm. And now, even today, as you think that's still what I want to do, you know that you're nothing but a fake, a wannabe, an imposter. I tell you all of that to say this. That is true in the church as well. There are a number of people that believe they are Christians. They can dress the part. They can look the part. They can act the part. But the truth is, they're fakes. They're imposters. I believe that because of the passage that Terry Granger read for us just a few minutes ago. Those were Jesus' words. If you were reading along with her from a red-letter edition of the Bible, which means all of the words of Jesus are in red letters, those were red letters. Those were Jesus' words. This was his teaching. There is the kingdom of God, and then there are seeds that are sown within the kingdom of God. Jesus had to explain this to the disciples even. They didn't grasp it at first. kingdom of God has seeds sown within it, and those seeds, when they are watered and fertilized and cared for, they grow up to be strong Christians. But from the moment the church began, the enemy has been sneaking into those fields, into those churches, and planting imposters there. And those imposters grow up right next to the real thing. And oftentimes it's not until the harvest that you can see the difference. It's called the parable of the weeds. Jesus wanted us to understand that even when the crop is harvested, the weeds will still be separated. The crop being real Christians, the weeds being the imposters. They'll be separated. The wheat, the good seed, will go on to receive their reward. The weeds will be bundled together and thrown into the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's tough teaching, but it is truth. We're in a series of sermons called Hard to Believe. And I know for many, this is hard to believe, but it is truth. Gospel, biblical truth. It's real. Sitting with us today, I'm sure there are imposters. I don't know who you are. God does. But there are people that would consider themselves believers, Christians, children of God, that are not. I want to show you a few other places in Scripture 
where all of this rings true. Let's begin in the early days of the church. We're going to go to the book of Acts. Acts records the birth of the church. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles were scattered all across the region. At the time, that meant all across the world. They carried the gospel with them. They would preach it in different places. People would respond to it, and the church was born. It would grow because of that. God gave the apostles special powers, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, if you will, that they might work miracles in front of people, capture their attention, and as a result of those miracles, they would be able to share the gospel with everyone around them. In Acts chapter 3, that's what we see happening. There was a man that was born lame. He found his way to the temple, oftentimes with the help of other people every day, so that he could beg at the gates. That was his only means of survival, the only way that he was going to make it through life. Peter and John found him there. We're in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You can imagine that at the moment that man was lifted up off of his mat, he became a believer. He was a Christian from that point forward. And he was a demonstrative Christian. He was walking and leaping and jumping and dancing and praising God. And everyone that came into proximity of him knew his story. People began to hear the message. There were others that were watching what was happening. And Peter began to preach to them. Listen to this, verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel... Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Do you follow what happened? They performed the miracle. That man got up off of his mat. He's praising God. Everybody else that was watching came crowding around them. And Peter, because he was Peter, did exactly what he should have. He preached the gospel message to them. He just laid it out, pure and simple. Within the realm of the church, there are all kinds of strategies for church growth. People hear about them. They write books about them. They sell their programs to all kinds of different places. Folks, I want you to know the best means of growing a church is to present the gospel, to never apologize for it, and let the Holy Spirit do what He does. That's the way to grow a church. You just preach the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that's what Peter did. After they heard it, listen to what happened. Verse 19, He said to him, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He followed the sermon with an invitation. He told them what they needed to do. You repent of your sin, you turn to God, and times of refreshing will come to you. It is that simple. Listen to the result. We're in chapter 4 now, verse 1. 
The priest and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. That's church growth. That was the casting of good seed across all of the soil. And that seed took root, and the church was born. It does not take very long from this point forward before the bad seeds find their way in. In fact, we're going to go just to Acts chapter 8. Starting in verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people both high and low gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Simon listened as Peter preached. He believed. And he was baptized, or as Philip preached. He believed, and he was baptized. He would have been counted among the church. He would have been considered a believer. He would have been considered, in our terminology, a Christian. But he wasn't. And it would take Peter to confront that in him, that he might really understand it. Because you see, at this point, Simon was all about Simon. He was never about Jesus Christ. He became a Christian became a believer and counted among the church for what he could receive. He was only taking from the kingdom. There was nothing that he wanted to contribute, nothing that he wanted changed about himself. It was all about him. And when Peter confronted it, he called it exactly what it was and got Simon even to a place where he said to Peter, pray for me, because I don't want any of that to happen. In Jesus' terminology, Simon would have been a weed growing next to the wheat. You could have looked at him and thought to yourself, he is one of the church. He takes the same amount of soil. He takes the same amount of water. He requires the same cultivating. He requires the same energy. And he appears to be growing at the same rate. But if you looked closer, you would find out that he was not the wheat. He was a weed. Jesus would say, for people like Simon, 
there was something waiting for them. That's that lake of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is an interesting term that appears in the book of Revelation. That's the only place that it shows up in Scripture. But it's a very interesting term. I want to show it to you this morning. Turn there with me. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now you're still in the book of Revelation. Go with me to chapter 20. From chapter 2 to chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Go with me to verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, what is that curious term that I told you appeared? You saw it in every one of these verses. The second death. Think about death for just a second. It's not something we all want to dwell on, but think about it. We do everything that we can to avoid it. No one is looking forward to death. We change our diet. We change exercise plans. We change our way of living. We do everything that we can to prolong the physical death. Yet everyone is going to face it. Every person. And the Bible would teach in the book of Revelation when John was looking into heaven, receiving that revelation, he saw something that he referred to as the second death. And it becomes very pointed what that is. It is the lake of fire. The lake of fire, the second death, remains for every person that is not a true believer in Jesus Christ. That's what's there. That's what's waiting. And folks, the tough teaching from Matthew chapter 13 is this. There are people even inside the church that have the second death, the lake of fire, remaining for them. They might even believe they're Christians on the surface. But if they were to really search their heart, they would find something totally different. In Matthew chapter 13, as well as in the book of Revelation, this other term shows up. Jesus says, both times, it's Jesus' words in Matthew 13 and Revelation chapter 2, to him who has an ear, let him hear. That is Jesus' effective way of doing this. Snapping and pointing at you. If you have ears, pay attention. This matters. And it cannot be taken lightly. Because the truth is, the hard to believe truth is, there are weeds among the wheat. There are imposters within the church. They have to be sorted out. Sometimes it will require the harvest at the end of the age to do that sorting. They may grow up right next to the good wheat and nobody will know the difference until the end. And the reason nobody will know the difference is because the weeds, listen, the weeds have not searched their hearts. If the second death is what waits for the weeds, this lake of sulfur and burning fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, we have to find the good news in that. The good news is for the real crop, for the real Christians, the real believers, the wheat, what waits are three crowns. And they are the exact opposite of the second death. 
Now, you may have thought to yourself, I know that there's a crown waiting for me in heaven, but really there are three. Let me show them to you this morning. The first one, we're going to go to the book of James. first one is found there. Pretty exciting one, and this is the one most people are familiar with. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There's the first crown. It's the crown of life, the crown of eternal life, so that death no longer has any hold over us. We no longer have to be afraid of death. We no longer have to try to avoid death, although there's good medicine in that. We no longer have to say, death is the end of everything and I am terrified of it, because the crown of life says that death really is nothing more than a beginning of our life in the very presence of God. And the crown of life ensures that to those that overcome, to the wheat, to the good crop that grows out of the good seed, that's what waits for us. Back in the book of Revelation, when John was receiving his vision, he wrote about what it would be like for those that would receive that crown. This is in Revelation chapter 21 again. Verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. All of those things that have defined our world, physical limitations, they're all gone. No more crying, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. I love the fact that John, when he writes about what heaven will be like for those that have received the crown of life, he comes at it from the negative. None of this is going to exist because we will be in the very presence of God Himself, wearing the first crown, the crown of life. But along with it, there is the second crown. It's called the crown of righteousness. Let me take you to the book of 1 Timothy. And once you get to 1 Timothy, turn over one more to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. The crown of righteousness follows the crown of life. The crown of righteousness, that's the crown that says you no longer have to worry about sin. You no longer have to battle against it. All of your struggles on this earth, all of the struggles and the pain and the toil and the, the torment that you have put into trying to overcome sin in your life and put that behind you, that's all over. Sin will no longer have a hold on you. It will no longer have any effect on you. You will no longer struggle against it because the crown of righteousness as it comes to rest on your head says it is all behind you now. Think about that. That's, that's that crown that goes with all of the other clothes that God has already given you. The Bible teaches that we are clothed in Christ. We are clothed in righteousness. Yet we are fully aware of the fact that the struggle continues until such a time that that crown of righteousness comes to rest on your head and on my head. And it follows the crown of life. And it's there for everybody that's growing up in the field, for everybody that comes from the good seed. It's there for the wheat, for those that overcome, for those that are believers in Jesus Christ, Christians that have given their life to Him. And then there's a third crown. We have the crown of life. We have the crown of righteousness. And then we have the crown of glory. Crown of glory is one that God really wants to give you. This is pretty cool stuff. Go with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. 
when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is nothing but my own imagination, so please accept it as that. This is not biblical truth. This is not biblical teaching. This is just Phil's imagination. Here's what I think the crown of glory is going to look like for me. I think Jesus is going to meet me at the gates of heaven. He's going to be holding a horse. And he's going to say, here you go, Phil. Go explore all of it. And it's going to be cool. And it'll be a white horse because Jesus rides a white horse. I ride a white horse. And it's going to be really cool. My horse is going to live forever. And he's going to meet. No, I'm just now I'm way off the reservation. The crown of glory is God saying, this is everything. The best of what I have created. Now go explore it. Go check it out. All of the limitations that you had to live by on the earth, they're gone. Now you just use everything that I've given you. You go check this place out. That's going to be amazing. Three crowns. The crown of life, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of glory. That's what waits for those that are growing up in the field from the good seed for the wheat. But for the weeds, they'll be bound together. After the harvest, they'll be separated from the good seed. They'll be bound together and thrown into the lake of fire where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Nothing appealing about that. Nothing at all. Nothing. Here's one of the wonderful things about the kingdom of God. It is possible to change, through Jesus Christ, to change the seed from which you are growing. And that is only possible in the kingdom of God. If you plant an apple seed, you will grow an apple tree. If you plant wheat seed, you will grow wheat. If you plant corn, you're going to grow corn. The kingdom of God, we know through the book of Romans, we are all sinners. Those seeds are planted deep within us. But in Christ, we can find new seed. We can find the ability to grow up different than that. We can change the seed. And that is possible only, only through Jesus Christ. And in Him, wow, Three crowns waiting for everybody. But folks, this is tough teaching. Even within the church. Even within local congregations. This one, churches all across Montana, all across the United States, all across the world. There are people that are wheat. And they know what that means. And there are people that are weeds that need to change where they're at. Even within the church. And it's possible in Jesus Christ begs a question, at least in my mind. Why does God do that? Why does He make it possible for us to change the seed from which we are growing? Well, the book of Isaiah actually answers that question in the most dramatic of ways. Why don't you go back to the Old Testament? This is the last scripture we're going to look at. The Old Testament book of Isaiah with me. Chapter 43, or 48, I'm sorry. Here's what's happening, a little background for you. God is telling the Israelites that He has always been faithful to them. Always. And then He tells them that they have always been unfaithful to Him. God's always been faithful. They've always been unfaithful. And God goes on to convict them even more. And He says, this is why you tell me that you've been unfaithful. You tell me that my idols made me do it. My graven images have made me be unfaithful to you. How many of you have said things that make you sound somewhat like the Israelites? The devil made me do it number of us. We're not much different than the Israelites. And God says, but I will remain faithful to you 
In fact, at this point in Isaiah chapter 48, God begins to tell the Israelites, I will send you a Messiah that will take care of all of this. I will send a Savior for you. And here's why he says he will do it. This is in verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Why does God make it possible for a sinner to repent and become a saint? For his own sake. Now, a lot of times we want to believe it's because God loves us that much. And that's true. That's New Testament teaching. God loved us so much that he would send his son to die for us. But one of the reasons that he loved us that much was for his own sake. That's why he does it. God says, I'm not going to let anybody point fingers at me anymore. I'm not going to let anybody make fun of me any longer. I'm not going to do that. I will not let my name be defamed. For my own sake, I will make this possible for the person that has mocked God. Or the person that has said they love God, but truly they're in it for themselves, just like Simon. For that person to be able to become a Christian, it is for God's sake. And so following that whole line of thinking, for God's sake, search your heart and ask yourself, am I a weed or am I wheat? What seed am I growing up out of? Was I planted here by the Holy Spirit or was I planted here by an enemy of God? For God's sake, you have to ask those questions and figure out for sure where you're at. For God's sake, the church has to search themselves. Does that make sense? Because Jesus taught back in Matthew chapter 13 that the reality is, even within the church, there are weeds. And the time will come when they will be separated. Until that time, it is up to us to search our own hearts and let the Holy Spirit convict everyone else to do the same. So I want us to stand together. We're going to pray with one another. And as we go through this time of prayer, I want to give you just a couple of things to ask. A couple of things to explore. And then I'll close this. So bow your heads and pray with me, would you? Would you simply ask that God help you search your heart that you might know whether you are weed or wheat. And then would you take it one step further and ask this question. Am I living for my own sake or for God's sake? Is it about me and for me? Or is it about Him and for Him? And so, Father, I know that these are tough questions for a lot of us to ask. For some, the answers uh, would be even more difficult. But Lord, the, the depth of grace continues to amaze me. That you would allow us, even at a point that we recognized that it's all about us and that we are living for our sake and not yours. You allow us to change. So Father, would you, where appropriate, help us do that. Help us live for your sake. Help us to live for you. And Father, would you help us not ignore the difficult teachings of the Bible, but to pay attention to them, that we might learn from them and be convicted from them. Because, Father, at the end of the day, it is our desire to wear the three crowns that you offer each one of us. Father, develop within us a, a healthy, holy fear 
that we might progressively get closer and closer and closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.